Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. This is the fifth year that we've been offering these forums on the average of one Thursday noon a month, September through April. They take place in the main auditorium of the church. They last an hour. They are free and open to the public. They are broadcast live by Minnesota Public Radio and rebroadcast the following Saturday noon and relayed over many national public radio outlets across the nation. You are invited to come or to just listen as you choose. Actually, we prefer to see you face to face. Why do we do it? Why do we present these forums? We do it as a public service. We do it not to entertain, but to probe the ethical dimensions of outstanding issues as represented by key figures in their fields. We do it to make public witness that our religious heritage compels us to keep testing the fiber of our society and to strengthen that fiber wherever we can. We do it not to be partisan, nor to play it safe, but because it matters and because we care. And who is today's speaker? Leon C. Martel. Dr. Martel is a political scientist and a futurist, specializing in economic, political, social, and resource issues. A futurist. I assume it's fair to say that Futurist is one of the newer professions, but then George Orwell was a futurist, wasn't he? His 1984 has come and gone, or has it? Perhaps our guest will comment. Dr. Martel has his doctorate from Columbia University. From 1977 to 1980, he was the executive vice president of the Hudson Institute, a think tank that does research and future studies for the federal government and for business. His new book is Managing Change, How to Prepare for the Future, a book that will soon be out. He is also co-author of the book, The Next 200 Years. I've often heard it said that the politician plans for the next election and that the statesman plans for the next generation. Now we learn that a futurist plans for the next 200 years. Fascinating. We want to hear more. Dr. Martel. Thank you, Dr. Martel, for your very warm and very evocative introduction, and thank you for your very very warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am indeed very honored to join the distinguished list of speakers who have appeared here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. And I'm happy too, I might add, to be in the Midwest again. As I travel about the country and speak in different parts of our great land, 
I do find many similarities among the people, certainly their kindnesses and their hospitalities from coast to coast, from north to south, and also the concerns and the hopes that they share. But I've also been rather fascinated by the differences. Differences in attitudes, differences in uh, preferences. And I want you to know that I think the East Coast takes itself much too seriously. It's just much too uptight. On the other hand, the West Coast, especially uh, California, doesn't take itself seriously enough. It's uh, too laid back. And the happy median does indeed seem to be here, in the heart of the country. Now, reflecting on my observation, a, a speaker that I know who also speaks in different parts of the land once gave me this advice. He said, when you speak in the East, wear a conservative three-piece suit. In California, try a silk shirt unbuttoned to the waist with a couple of gold chains around your neck. <laughs> but in the heart of our country, wear whatever you want because there the people are more interested in what you are than what you wear. But do wear something. <laughs> I'm happy to be here in my two-piece suit to, uh, to speak to you. As Dr. Meisel said, I'm here as a futurist. It's the future I want to talk about. It is an activity, as you might imagine, that is uh, fraught with some risk. The Wall Street Journal recently gave this rather unappetizing warning to forecasters. I assume they had economic forecasters principally in mind. The journal said, quote, he who lives by the crystal ball must soon learn to eat ground glass. In New York, where I live, the legislators evidently decided to make the warning even stronger. Uh, and I discovered to my great surprise in section 899, of the New York State Code of Criminal Procedure, the following clause, quote, if persons pretending to forecast the future shall be considered disorderly and liable to a fine of $250 and or six months in prison. Well, I understand you're a lot more liberal here in Minnesota. The tradition of free speech is much stronger, and so I don't fear getting turned in. On the other hand, uh, there is the far more relaxed view of that great American philosopher, Calvin Coolidge. You didn't know he was a philosopher, did you? <laughs> Who once said about the future, if you wait long enough, it will be here. <laughs> the problem, of course, is that if we wait long enough, it will be too late. We like to know now, as much as we can, about what will happen tomorrow. And yet it seems increasingly difficult to do this, because as we look ahead, what we seem to see is less continuity, less stability, more uncertainty. And yet, in spite of this, I do think that we can understand a good deal about the future, that much of the future is knowable. The key to this knowledge, I think, is to adopt a long-term perspective that is not just to look at the present, not just to look at what's happening now, at today's trends, whether they be megatrends or mini-trends, but to take a longer look, a larger look, a wider look. And when you do that, what you see 
is not the continuation of present trends, but what you see is change, change. And change is not random, change isn't willy-nilly, it's not like the throw of a roll of dice. Change does have a pattern. Change has a direction, it has a magnitude, it has a pace, it has a duration. And we can examine those dimensions of the patterns of change, and from them we can learn about the future. That's the long-term perspective that I'm adopting this morning, and with it, I want to look at two kinds of general changes occurring in the world. First, those that are favorable, those that show things that are getting better, and there is quite a long list of those. And these hold the promise for the future. And the other kind are those that are unfavorable, that reveal what will get worse, that indicate the peril for the future. So my subject then today is the promise and the peril of the future and the prospect of achieving the promise rather than the peril. And I welcome your questions afterwards, not just about the subjects I raised, but really about anything concerning the future. I realize that includes everything, and I would say right away that I'm certainly not an expert on everything, but you won't find me shy about trying on almost anything that you come up with. Let me begin then with the promise. The favorable changes that are occurring, they're not often spoken of, they're not often toted up. The general impression often is that nothing is working out, that things can only get worse. Giscard d'Estaing of France said a few years back, all the curves are pointing downward. The attitude of that kind of a statement is a little like that expressed in O'Toole's law. You know, you've all heard of Murphy's law. It says that if something can go wrong, it will. Well, O'Toole's law states that Murphy was an optimist. <laughs> and that's what those forecasts remind me of. In fact, there are many things that are going well. There are a number of problems that for years we have considered very serious, very intense, that are today being solved or that clearly are capable of being solved. The list is very impressive. The most important one of these problems that are solvable or capable of being solved is one that affects so many others, and that is population. Most of us were brought up to believe the world is experiencing a permanent population explosion, a population bomb, as one book dramatically called it in its title a few years ago. Population was growing at exponential rates, doubling in shorter and shorter periods of time until finally we would be overwhelmed on this planet by people. And this image was reinforced last summer on the eve of the United Nations World Population Conference in Mexico City when again we saw cover stories in Time and other magazines illustrating uh, this population explosion. Now it is true that the first result of economic growth following the Industrial Revolution was to slow death rates. And by slowing death rates, while birth rates remained high, population, of course, increased and increased dramatically for about 200 years. But there has been a second equally important result of economic growth, and that is to reduce the need 
and the desire for large families. This occurs with economic growth and economic maturity because more children survive birth and childhood diseases. More public and private programs provide support for the elderly, formerly an activity that older people count on their children for. More women enter the labor force, delay marriage, have fewer children. At the same time, economic growth steadily improves the technology of family planning and birth control, making it more possible to carry out the decision to have fewer children. And because economic growth and the technology for family planning are reaching more and more countries, and both points are important, the argument this last summer was simply inane between the liberals who would support principally birth control and the conservatives who would support principally economic growth. Both are necessary, both help. Because both are reaching more and more countries, the exponential curve is turning over. The peak in the rate of growth, the words are very important, the peak in the rate of growth of population has been reached and passed. That means that in about 10 years, the number of people added each year to the world's population will begin to decline. And that eventually, and the number seems to get shorter every year, eventually, a peak will be reached in the total number of people on Earth, reached and passed. Now, this is a momentous change in human history, probably the biggest change in the history of the planet. It means that a great corner has been turned, and we won't turn back on it. When we were working on our book, The Next 200 Years, in the Hudson Institute in, in 1975, we were very interested in trying to if we could, determine the exact date in which the rate of growth of population had in fact stopped increasing. And at that time, it appeared it would be that very year, 1975. I remember discussing this with the director of the Institute, Herman Kahn, who sadly passed away in July of 83. Perhaps you remember him, you might have seen him on television, or seen him in person even. He was a jolly giant of a man, 350 pounds, and quite a patriot and, and nationalist too. And when he heard that in 1975 this historic date would be reached, he shook his head rather sadly that it couldn't be in 1976, the year of the American Bicentennial. And suddenly his eyes brightened and he got what he called a new public policy program for the Hudson Institute. It was called Sex in 75. <laughs> we'd all go out and do our thing in 1975 and we'd push that peak rate one year forward to 1976 an appropriate celebration for the American Bicentennial. Well, as we got better data in, particularly as data began to come from the largest nation in the world, China, at the end of the 1970s, it was clear that that date had to be pushed back further and further. Until today, most demographers acknowledge that the rate of growth of population stopped growing about 20 years ago, in the early 1960s. It has been, been slowing ever since. The population bomb has fizzled and is being diffused. And this change is indeed part of the promise of the future. Now this change is terribly important because it means the question of the adequacy of resources for the future can be answered differently than before. An ever-increasing population would give us only one answer. No, we will not have enough. But a slowing 
eventually peaking population allows us to consider yes as an answer to the question, will we have enough resources? And when we look at changes occurring in the availability of resources, in the long-term perspective, the answer is yes. We do indeed have enough. The case can essentially be made by looking at the two resources we need new supplies of every day. And those two are food and energy. With regard to food, the common wisdom has often been the neo-Malthusian view after the 18th century British writer Thomas Malthus that population is outpacing food production leading to starvation and famine. The reality is that food production has risen faster than population growth in 19 of the past 20 years. The reason for this success is rapidly improving agricultural technology particularly here in the heart of the country. That technology doesn't stay here though. It moves. It moves to other countries. And as it does so, their food production increases too, as it is doing now. And not only does the technology move, it improves. This means new technology, genetic engineering, controlled growing environments, eventually manufactured food, especially for animal feed, will dwarf what can be done now. The real challenge of food for the future is not shortage, it is surplus. In this country, we're already paying farmers not to plant, and under PIK, the PIK plan last year, even to destroy crops. This change does not mean that everyone in the world has enough to eat. Millions do not. Witness the situation in Ethiopia and the Sahel parts of Africa today. But it does mean, it does mean that the problem has shifted from a problem of production to a problem of distribution. It does mean that we can feed the world. And that, too, is part of the promise of the future. The other basic need is energy. And although the price of oil is falling now, pessimists are ready with their scenarios of disaster still. But they haven't looked at the problem in long-term perspective. We are very close to the era of eternal energy when energy will be as available as air and water. And like air and water, the principal problems will be quality and distribution, not supply. The technology of solar and geothermal energy is improving rapidly. So too is that of a man-made source, fusion, another eternal source. And when some combination of these three, solar, geothermal, fusion, comes online, probably by the middle of the next century, the era of eternal supply will have arrived and the energy problem will be solved and it will be solved for all time. Until then, during the transition to that eternal era, we will have to count on non-renewable sources. And these will continue to be adequate for a very simple reason, a simple reason that astonishingly was totally forgotten through most of the last decade. And that reason is that when the price of a commodity rises, those who are using it have a strong incentive to use less because it's costing them more, very suddenly. And so what do they do? They conserve, they save, they use less, and demand falls. But those supplying that commodity 
but the rising price have a very strong incentive to supply more and more can be produced. You can get a lot more oil out of the ground when it's $30 a barrel than when it's $3 a barrel. And so the supply rises. Demand falls, supply rises, higher prices produce not shortages, as everyone argued, but surpluses. Now there are still dangers of complacency that would put off developing the eternal sources. There's still dangers of a run-up in demand causing panic buying, a cutoff of important sources. These would cause problems, but not enough to exhaust the supply of non-renewables. There should be more than enough to last till the era of eternal renewable energy sources. We have had energy problems. Anyone who stood in the gas line knows that. But never an energy crisis. And we never will. And this, too, is part of the promise of the future. The same analysis can be applied to other resources and to raw materials, where we do not need new supplies every day. Through further exploration and development of new sources, we will have still more in the future. We will have even more through recycling and reusing, and beyond that, through new materials made from basic, abundant substances. Look how we're replacing copper cables right now with fiber optic cables, much, much more efficient. What are they made of? They're made of silicates, the second most abundant material on the face of Earth. New materials made from basic, abundant substances can ensure us supplies that will last as long as the Earth lasts. We are unlikely ever to run out of anything we truly need on this planet. We can also maintain an environment of clean air, clear water, and adequate disposal of waste. For these are not unsolvable problems that will overwhelm us, they're engineering problems. And with sufficient effort and resources, they can be solved, as they have been already in many parts of this country and abroad. Now, seen in a long-term perspective, then, the promise is indeed there. It is clear that for a number of problems that seem particularly intense, food, population, energy, raw materials, pollution, and others could be added, solutions are at hand, or clearly visible. Those who believe we're running out of everything, except maybe people and pollution, those who speak of the politics of scarcity, are simply wrong. The situation is not as grim as it seems. When he used the famous words of Mark Twain, when he spoke of the music of Richard Wagner, it's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> Along with the promise, though, there is also peril. And it would be a not, and it, the problems that are likely to grow worse, where solutions are not seen. And it would be a naive futurist indeed who did not also acknowledge the peril along with the promise. Economic growth has created rising expectations, but productive capacity has not grown as fast as those expectations, and this has created problems for both the developed nations and the developing nations. In the advanced developed nations in Europe and in North America, the characteristic response to rising expectations is to stimulate demand. That is, to use public policy in various ways to create money and credit. But all of these nations are rapidly becoming post-industrial nations with economies that are dominated by service activities and slower growing populations. This means slower rates of productivity 
slower rates of economic growth. As a result, demand is regularly running ahead of productive capacity. Or to put it in simple terms, we all know, too much money is chasing too few goods. And that's the classic definition of inflation. In the United States, the inflation rate has fallen, but it's still positive. In fact, it's been positive for 30 years. This is the first time we've had such a sustained rise in inflation since the late 16th century, when precious metals were brought into the old world from the new. Higher inflation is lucky to come calling again, for we have built in a level of demand far in excess of any reasonable projection of economic growth to meet it. Witness our huge federal deficit, parts of which that normally rise during periods of growth, that normally fall, I mean, during periods of growth, rose during last year, a year of unusual growth. Inflation will be an unwelcome visitor. Recession and depression are very damaging. Recession and depression can postpone the future. Inflation is far worse. It can destroy the future. And so it is indeed a peril. For the less developed nations, rising unfulfilled expectations also pose a peril. In many of these nations, the institutions and procedures for making laws are new, not widely tested, widely accepted. The older institutions and loyalties to tribes, racial groups, religious groups, are usually much stronger. And so the response in those countries to unfulfilled expectations is often through turmoil and conflict rather than public policy. And turmoil and conflict are made still more dangerous when other nations take sides as they do. And that is a peril of the future. An even greater peril arises and will continue to arise because of the weapons that are available when political conflict leads to military action. In the future, the technology of weapons will develop further. Above all, the most serious trend in weapons development will continue. And that is the trend that puts more and more destructive power at the disposal of smaller and smaller units, nations, groups, even individuals. It's this that is the single most important technical reason for the steadily growing rise of terrorist incidents right at this very hour. Furthermore, the technology of the most destructive weapons, atomic weapons, is well known. We can't uninvent the atomic bomb. We're stuck with it for all time. The material needed to assemble one is becoming more widely available. Access to these weapons will continue to grow. The likelihood of an incident, a seizure, a threat, even a noose will also grow. And there are personal perils, perils of indecision, of frustration, of loneliness. Our prosperity, a remarkable prosperity in just a half a century, has given us more economic security and more independence than we've ever had before. And so more freedom than we've ever had before. And there have been many benefits from this. But also, it's also meant that many have cast aside traditional anchors that have held them in place. It's a family and church and community. And have found themselves then adrift in a sea of options and alternative lifestyles. We have become, rather quickly, a well-developed sense of self, society. 
in the newer nations, modernization has come even faster, and the disruption has been even greater. Their people have been from patterns of behavior unchanged for centuries and thrust into a world changed their very eyes. Robert Oppenheimer, the great nuclear scientist, wrote in his diary, the world alters as we walk in it so that the years of a man's life measure not some small growth or rearrangement of what he learned in childhood, but a great upheaval. So there are indeed unfavorable aspects of change. The peril is there too. For a number of problems, solutions are not at hand, nor are they even visible. So in the long-term perspective, we see both kinds of changes, favorable and unfavorable. We have made enormous progress, and we should not forget it. We have increased food production, we have eliminated diseases, we have reduced suffering, we have made life longer, more comfortable, more satisfying for more people than ever before in human history. And the promise of the future is that we will do even better for still more of us, for all of us. But we have also created greater uncertainty and instability. We have increased anxiety. We have forged the tools of our own destruction and the peril of the future is that we might use them. More prosperity, but more danger. A rather melancholy picture as we approach the year 2000, the bimillennium of the Christian calendar. But it is not a picture without hope. There is hope. The hope lies in the record to date, in the record of the learning and the resources that have solved and are solving so many problems so well. The hope is that we'll continue to build on that record, successfully applying our learning and resources to the still unsolved problems, that the promise will be stronger than the peril. And there's every reason for believing in that hope. We can conceive and we can finally experience many kinds of limits. There are limits of fossil fuels, there are limits of certain raw materials, there are boundaries, boundaries of land, of time, for each of us individually, the boundary of human life itself. But there is one activity, one activity that is forever a renewable resource, where there are no limits, no known boundaries. And that activity is the pursuit of knowledge. There, the limits to growth will never be reached. The American essayist, Henry David Thoreau, who was hardly a technological optimist, nonetheless wrote this in the journal he kept of his life and wanderings about that beautiful lake in eastern Massachusetts called Walden. Wrote Thoreau, man's capacities have never been measured, nor are we to judge of what he can do by any precedence. So little has been tried. So let me conclude with a metaphor, a metaphor that expresses this hope, for hope is the feeling that my studies of the future leave me with, and certainly it's the same feeling I want to leave with you. It is a familiar metaphor. It's been popular for a number of years with the doomsayers and the gloomsayers, but uh, I don't count myself amongst their number, and so I look at, uh, look at it a little differently. The metaphor goes like this. 
It depicts the five billion year physical history of the Earth so far as a 24-hour day. Now on that basis, human history has taken up the last five minutes of those 24 hours. In recorded history, really, just the last few seconds. Now the implication of the metaphor, when stated in this fashion, is that midnight is near, the day is almost over, and the Earth, too. I prefer to look at the metaphor differently. There is a general guess among physicists and geologists that the Earth may last perhaps 10 billion years more. If so, a third of the Earth's history has passed. And on the basis of that 24-hour day, it's now 8 a.m. The sun has just risen, the day has just begun, and it's time to go to work. Thank you very much. Dr. Martel, you <clears throat> began by saying that people in the Midwest are more interested in what you are rather than how you appear. Well, we like what you are by many of the things you said, and we like your two-piece suit. <laughs> <laughs> Let me simply remind our radio audience that uh, you have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our forum speaker today has been and is Leon Martel, a futurist. The title of his topic, The Future, Promise or Peril, and how to materialize on the promise, to capitalize on it. Well, we'll take a moment now to permit those of you who must leave at the break to do so, and also for those of you who have questions to pass those yellow cards to the aisles that uh, the ushers might pick them up and bring them forward. So we'll just take a moment for that. Uh, we won't waste a lot of time, however, and as soon as uh, those who must leave do so, we'll, uh, we'll get right into the question period with a couple that I have uh, ready at hand. Dr. Martel, would you return to the podium and, and perhaps we'll get right into it. Uh, what about Orwell? How close did he come? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, in his novel, Orwell was concerned, obviously, with what he had seen in his own experiences in his own lifetime. And he had been a socialist, you must remember, a leftist. He had gone to Spain, fought in the Civil War, and he had become very disillusioned over the fighting amongst the leftists there, and particularly uh, the way the communists had treated their fellow uh, brother leftists. And gradually he became very disillusioned with Stalin's Russia, starting with that experience. And then, of course, he went through the experience of the war and had, and had knowledge, and uh, didn't, wasn't in Germany, but had knowledge of fascist Germany as well. He was also a a well-read man, he was aware of new technologies that were being developed. And Orwell said, with these new technologies, particularly devices that could spy on people, it would be possible for the tyrants in the future to really be able to carry out their goals, to totally control individuals. And so he wrote, not a prophecy, but he wrote a warning. He said, look, this is what can happen. 
He wrote it in 1948 and he took the years 48 and reversed them. We got 84 and titled it 1984. <laughs> and, and gave us, I think, in doing that, gave us something very useful. He gave us a vocabulary, a double think, newspeak. He gave us the adjectival form of his own name, Orwellian. And he said, look, look, look at what can happen if you let the tyrants do that. And I think that helped us to identify what it is that we did not want to have happen. And so I kind of think of Orwell uh, as a prophet of gloom in the sense that I think of uh, people with uh, baseball averages, and I know this town is well acquainted with baseball averages, particularly at the lower end of the scale. <laughs> what, do we, what do we want our prophets of gloom to bat? Do we want them to bat? We certainly don't want them to bat 1,000. Do we want them to bat 500? No. We don't even want them to bat 300. We'd like our prophets to gloom, of gloom to bat 0, 0, 0. As a prophet, I think that's what George Orwell is batting today, zero, zero, zero. But if he were alive to know it, I think he'd be very, very proud of that average because it meant that what he said in his book was taken heed of. Before I pose the next question, let me simply acknowledge that uh, Dr. Martell's coming has been co-sponsored today by the James Ford Bell Foundation, and we're grateful for that support. Uh, President Reagan spoke in his State of the Union message, sir, about a second American revolution. Uh, that certainly has future uh, ramifications. Would you care to comment on that at all? <laughs> well, uh, I didn't realize he was a revolutionary. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, I probably didn't probably think of George Washington as a revolutionary either. Uh, I think that the president is referring to the fact that uh, uh, in his administration, uh, he has tried uh, to reverse uh, the movement that has taken place in government in the last 50 years to involve itself in more and more activities. And as he's argued very consistently throughout his, his later political life, he was originally a Democrat, but throughout his, and a follower of Roosevelt's, throughout his later political life, that he, he would like to see and believe that we should roll back the greater incursion of government activity uh, whether it be in providing more things or regulating more things, controlling more things. And I think he sees his second term as an opportunity to continue that activity and that he really sees it, uh, uh, he really sees this as the revolution that he's talking about. Um, my comment to that uh, would take you back to a book written back in uh, 1940 by Arthur M. Schlesinger Sr., Sr., not Jr., uh, in which he started with the year 1750 and he showed remarkably that American history has been characterized by cycles of movement from a very liberal period where the government is very active, very deeply involved, sponsoring lots of things, doing lots of things, until the pendulum swings back to the other side. There's a rather conservative regime which backs away from any of those things and it swings back again. Sester in his book calculated uh, what he thought were the approximate periods of the swings. And then made this absolutely astonishing prediction in 1940. And he said, in 1962, give or take a year, we will have back in office a liberal democratic president. And in 1978, give or take a year, we will have back in office a conservative uh, president and conservative administration. 
And I think that the greater truth is really there than in any second uh, American Revolution. I think many of the things the president has done, certainly in terms of, of at least turning around the, the malaise and the, the going to hell in the handbasket kind of feeling that seemed to crop up, and I visited the White House during the Carter years and also during the Reagan years, um, it was a gloomy place. Uh, during the Carter years, there really was a notion of malaise. You know, Jesus, we can't, nothing can work anymore. Uh, I think the president's done a great job in turning that around. Whether he started a second revolution, I doubt that very much. There's only been one American revolution. I don't think we'll have another one. <laughs> this, I'm quoting you. The same technology that has the power to destroy is also the hope for the future. Uh, I guess my question would be, is that a, showing a bit too much faith in technology and a not enough realistic dealing with human nature? <laughs> no, not at all. Let's put it this way. Um, Let's say that technology is regularly giving us new ways to destroy each other. And we know that, and I spoke about the development of weapons as indicative of that. But technology is also doing something else for us, too. It's doing many other things for us, but another important thing that it's doing, it is regularly giving us new ways to speak to each other. And I think that I would like to put my money on that second horse rather than the first one. I do believe that over time we have built up a tighter and tighter web of nets of interdependency among nations of the world. We're seeing this constantly happening. Uh, look what happened when we tried to uh, embargo wheat to the Soviet Union. We shot ourselves in the foot. And the Soviet Union could buy wheat from Canada, Australia, Argentina, anywhere else it wanted to. Look at what happened this very month of February, 1985. The United States, for the first time since the 19th century, became a debtor nation. We owe more money now than is owed to us. Another indication of growing interdependence. Now, we must be very careful to understand the difference between economic interdependence and political interdependence. And we must not assume that we can easily slide from one to the other. Nonetheless, the example of what we do in one and the nets the networks of interdependency that we create can be very important analogs, illustrations, building blocks for that other kind of interdependence. This doesn't mean we all become alike, we all have the same system. No, I think we're a long time, if ever, from that. But it does mean that we can move in that direction. And technology, although it also teaches, also, we can also use it to destroy each other, is the most important factor in enabling us to do that. The reason that we can create these economic nets of interdependency is we can zap money back and forth so fast today. We haven't been able to do that until just a few years ago. So that kind of technology, to talk to each other, to communicate with each other, is a tremendously strong one. And I would believe that in the long run is the stronger one, the winning one, than the one that enables us to destroy each other. A number of questions from the audience gather around uh, ecological questions and concerns. Uh, one of them reads as follows. You mentioned that solving the problem of clean air, clean water, and waste disposal, uh, that these problems are uh, engineering problems. At the community level, these are highly political problems. How can we as citizens overcome the political barriers uh, to move more quickly to the uh, uh, engineering solutions? Yeah. Uh, when efforts are applied to them, they can be solved, as we've seen, for example, in the simple matter of reducing the 
emissions from uh, automobiles. No one really thought much about this for a long time uh, because we were concerned more with power and style and comfort and design and so forth in our cars. All of a sudden, people said, hey, they're making a mess. They're making the air very dirty. Let's do something. We had to do it very fast. And of course, that was difficult to do. And it was dragging your feet. And people screamed and yelled because the automobile companies, of course, passed on some of that cost. But they couldn't pass on all of it. They had to swallow some of it themselves as well. And there was resistance. And there always will be resistance. If someone is running a plant, and he's got about maybe a, a looking at, at a 3% net margin at the end that he's coming off that plant. Someone comes along and says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you've got to put on a million dollar um, unit here to take care of waste that you're dumping in the local river. I mean, you can bet he's going to drag his feet because if, if he has to do that, he's not going to make any money next year or next quarter or maybe he's going to go out of business. So there has to be ways of working together, of understanding that the other guy is going to have problems too. Now, this is not to excuse people that are really criminal in their activities, and, and we indeed have some of those cases, but it is still to understand that these problems sometimes develop slowly over a long period of time, but then are realized very quickly. And it's very difficult to get the solutions imposed very quickly. And so it takes, it takes concerted effort by people. Now you, you, you can replicate this problem throughout a society, and this is a problem, one of the fundamental problems that I'm raising in the book that uh, Dr. Mizell mentioned, of change. Because there's more change, it's coming faster at a faster pace, and this creates problems that really require solutions that are more than just the individual person, the individual industry, or the individual citizen that require a joint effort. You can't go to Pittsburgh and tell a steel worker, age 40, who's worked 20 years in the mill, sorry, fellow, you made the wrong choice of job 20 years ago. You can't do that. Compassion, the, the, the economic health of the community, self-interest even, requires you to do better than that. And I think the same kind of thing can be applied to these problems. This is not to say it's an easy thing to do, but it has been done. Go look at downtown Pittsburgh, look at the Willamette River, uh, look even around this area, and I, can, I think you can see that it, it can work. The important thing, though, it is a joint effort more than it is an adversary effort. There's a question in here somewhere about the future of the blue-collar worker. Uh, what is his or her fate in the uh, new society with uh, more and more dependence on uh, technology? For years, we have spoken of labor is divided in those two main classifications, the white-collar group and the blue-collar group. That division is fast fading. Today, 3% of our workforce is on the farm. Terrifically efficient 3%. Produces all the food we need and exports uh, a third of its crop, hopes it can export a third of its crop. 25% uh, of our labor force is in the factory. And if you're counting, uh, that leaves over 70% of the labor force in service sector activities. We are very, very rapidly becoming a service sector activity dominated economy. And that 25% traditional blue collar workers is disappearing very, very rapidly. In fact, by the end of the century, I would think that that 25% would be cut in half, maybe down to 12 uh, or 13%. We are rapidly moving as we go from an industrial society to a post-industrial society, from a division that was blue-collar, white-collar, to a new division. And the new division is the information-rich and the information-poor. 
The information rich are those who create and control information, and the information poor are those who are controlled by it. Now, this creates very difficult problems. One of the problems that is created is the fact that for years, somebody with modest skills coming out of a high school or a trade school could go into a factory uh, by dint of uh, training, on-the-job training, hard work, pick up a skill, work his way up, become a foreman, and get really a good, solid-paying job, a job that enables them to buy a house, raise a family, have, have a car, maybe have two cars, a boat, vacation, and so forth, be up $25,000, $30,000 a year. That's not possible anymore. Those jobs are fading fast. This doesn't mean there are no jobs. There are a lot of jobs out there. But there are different kinds of jobs now. There are those information-poor jobs, the jobs where people are controlled by information. The guy that sits there uh, with his finger on a button in a McDonald hamburger stand, and he pushes the button when the light goes on and says the hamburger's done, and he gets, what, $3.50 or $4 or at the most an hour. And so all of a sudden, those few, the, that, that, the, those kinds of jobs that required a few skills have disappeared, and there's nothing really uh, to replace them. Well, this is a very serious problem for the future. And all you can say, I think now, is you have to understand this. You have to understand again this kind of change that is occurring. And you have to begin at the very beginning, at kindergarten practically, and you have to say, in the future, it's going to be knowledge and education that's going to count. You know, for centuries, we, the world was labor-intensive. And then in the industrial era, it became capital-intensive. In the future, in the advanced post-industrial economies, it's going to be knowledge-intensive. And if you want to live well, if you want to be among those who have the better-paying jobs, more satisfying lives, and more opportunities, that is the direction you have to move in the future. And that's what's going to have to happen to the blue-collar people of today. Another question. What's ahead for families? Family life is changing quite rapidly. What will be the future of the nuclear family? How will the changing of stereotypical roles for men and women affect the future of the family? I think what has really happened, as I suggested in my remarks, uh, is that economic um, independence, economic security really, has given us more opportunities, uh, has allowed people it's sort of a rush, you might say, uh, to go out and try all kinds of things that they hadn't tried before. I think we are now seeing somewhat the, the passing of the peak of that activity. The residual that is left over will be more different people doing more different things than before. I mean, it, it, through any kind of a, a cycle that you pass through, you reach a peak where everybody says, gee, this must be great, let's go out and try it. And then after a while, disillusionment sets in and not as many people are trying it. But there are still some who say, yeah, I like it better this way. I want to live this way. I want, this is the way I want my life to develop. And they'll go on and do it. So there'll be sort of a residual element that accounts for the fact that we have more uh, single-person uh, households, that we have more non-married uh, men and women households, that we have more uh, men and men, women and women households. We have more varieties uh, than we've had before. But look carefully at the statistics. It's very, very interesting. If you go back in any kind of statistic that concerns social behavior, uh, whether it's crime, family breakup, divorce, whatever, you'll find that, that they are cyclical, that they rise and fall. The notion that the divorce rate is going like that is wrong. The notion that the homicide rate is going like that is wrong. 
it goes up and it goes down, it goes up and it goes down. Now over time, changes do occur, structural changes, but don't mistake the cyclical changes for structural changes. The divorce rate has been falling for four years in a row. And it will continue to fall. It will not get down to where it was before because economic security, because changing of laws have allowed divorces to occur today that would not have occurred before. But what would have occurred before might have been the continuation of very unhappy families. And so there may be a residual gain from that. We have indeed changed. We've come into an era where there are more different things to do and that are acceptable to be done. It does not mean the nuclear family is ending. It does not mean we're going to end up with a world with uh, no more traditional fathers and mothers and two kids. We're always going to have that world. Another question. What role will churches and synagogues play in the future of our society and culture? Well, the role that we've seen uh, develop has been very interesting in the last few years. And that is one of less uh, institutionalization, where people have gathered under different kinds of environments to pursue uh, their particular view of what to them are satisfying guidelines for their lives. And so you've seen the evangelical movements grow. We've seen movements that don't fall under the, our traditional breakdown of, of different religious groups. And I, I think, again, we've seen that kind of peak. And probably more people will now return to the more institutionalized forms. Perhaps not as many as before, but more will come back. Uh, Herman Kahn used to say, uh, uh, there are many mountains up to God, and there are many paths up those mountains. Uh, and people should not believe that they're on the only path on the only mountain. And I think that is the kind of tolerance and wisdom that we should have as we look at these different kinds of groups. Not that we should abandon the institutions that are important to us and familiar to us. We should nourish them and strengthen them, of course. But we should also be tolerant of the others and always leave ourselves open. Another question. How will morals and moral standards change in the years ahead? Again, I, I, I would uh, go against the common wisdom that says that there's a moral degeneracy afoot, that things are simply getting worse and worse. Um, this often comes up. I believe instead uh, that, these are, that these are cyclical phenomena that occur, that they are attributed to other kinds of cyclical phenomena. Uh, for example, uh, we know uh, that crime rates are very sensitive to population cohort groups and that crime typically occurs in the largest percentages in those in their late teens and early 20s. And so when you have an unusually large number of those people, as we did for several years when the baby boomers were in those years, crime rates were high. But now that group is passing, is passing on um, into uh, adulthood. And lo and behold, the crime rate is going down. I, I was totally disgusted when I heard the Attorney General taking credit for the fall in the U.S. crime rate the other day. <laughs> really? I mean, the man should know better. Uh, a lot of it simply has to do with uh, demography. There's another important point, too. Crime is closely related to where people live. Except for murder, uh, most crimes are committed in cities. There's a larger number of crimes for the number of inhabitants are in the cities than they are in the small towns or in the rural areas. And so as the populations have moved to the cities and then have moved back out to the country, 
That's the reversal that began in the mid-1970s, and that too will contribute to lower crime rates. Economic problems, of course, add as well. Crime rates, as you might expect, will rise during certain poor economic periods and fall during better periods. So, generally speaking, uh, these more kinds of moral questions, I think, are cyclical. Now, there are structural changes that occur, and it's important to understand that. Uh, for example, 200 years ago, there was no white-collar crime, you know, for a very good reason. <laughs> Nobody in white-collar jobs. 20 years ago, well, let's say 30 years ago, there was no computer crime. Uh, now there's a whole category of computer criminals because we have computers today. Well, that's simply because a new opportunity has risen, not because moral standards have, have fallen. Now, I think these things rise and fall and that they're dependent upon other activities that are occurring. And we are better off understanding them that way. This is not to say we shouldn't move against crime. We shouldn't, we shouldn't teach values. We shouldn't do everything we can to instill moral integrity in our children and ourselves. Obviously, we should. We must. We're imperfect. Uh, and I think we have an obligation to do that. But it, that's a lot different than saying, yeah, everything's going downhill. It's just getting worse and worse. No, that's not the case. Before I pose a final question to you, sir, I, I feel a need to remind the radio audience that they are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and that uh, they, as the rest of us, have been enjoying listening to Dr. Leon Martel, a futurist, talking about the future, promise, or peril. Let me also remind that the next Town Hall Forum will be Thursday, March 21st, and that Robert Shaw will be the speaker, and that his theme will be Music and Worship, a tribute to Bach on his birthday. Uh, I think it's an uh, interesting aside that, or not an aside really, that that program will be broadcast live over the whole uh, national uh, public uh, radio network as part of dedicating that whole day to Bach and his memory. Let me pose this final question. Uh, before that, let me thank you for coming. Uh, you quoted uh, Coolidge as saying, if you wait long enough, uh, the future will come. Well, the future, namely one o'clock, is almost here, but you filled that time nicely for us. Let me ask a question that's come from the audience. How do you prepare for the future? <laughs> <laughs> I've been so busy writing about it, I never thought about that. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, preparation for the future um, is something that uh, you're constantly working on, at least I guess I feel that I'm constantly working on it. Uh, and uh, when you're young, when you're going to school, um, you have a lot of very strong ideas about what you're going to do, and you're not really listening to too many other people. Perhaps some are, I hope. <laughs> but uh, you move forward very strongly on your intuition, so to speak. We see this in our children, I think. Um, then as you meet along the way, and you read a few things, and you have a few experiences, then you begin to create certain boundaries of where you want to be, uh, and what you think are going to be the situations in which you can be what you want to be. I suppose that I find myself uh, tried a variety of different things, a variety of different activities, uh, having been exposed some, uh, happily, some very fine people uh, in my life and some fine influences. Uh, I 
by thinking in terms of um, what these remaining years, and once you get to a certain point, you begin to realize there are remaining years, uh, can be done. What really can be done during these years? And what is the environment in which I'm likely to be able to operate? And are the two compatible? I, I think that uh, if each of us spent more time really trying to think ahead, to try to understand uh, what is happening in terms of change, to try to see the environment of 10, 20, 30 years from now. I know that's a difficult activity, but just thinking about it takes you part of the way. Then I think you can adjust better how you see your own goals. It's very, very hard to set goals and not have some kind of assumptions about the environment in which you hope to see those goals achieved. And that's why the profession of futurist optimizology says rather new one, I guess, uh, I think has become very important, particularly as change has moved on faster and faster. Because I think what we do at our best is to try to tell people about that environment in which they can hope to achieve their goals so that they will better be able to form those goals and carry them out. Uh, and if you can do that, uh, I think you indeed will have a, a happy life and a good future, and I wish you all one. Thank you very much.